Welcome. Glad to have you with us. It is Gary on Guns. I'm your host, Gary Nolan, your equal opportunity annoyer. And Powderhorn Guns and Archery is in the studio. Brian is on board this morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Gary. And uh, we got Jordan in with us. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. But we didn't bring in Not That Jared. Uh, we did not. We made him work this morning. <laughs> <laughs> You're paying him, you figure. You might as well. <laughs> All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover, including coming up at uh, about 90 minutes from now, roughly. We are going to have Dr. John Lott on the program. Uh, apparently, there are more people legally carrying firearms stopping crimes uh, than uh, the government's willing to admit. But I want to kick the program off with an article I was reading uh, earlier uh, from Outdoor Life, How to Choose the Ultimate Concealed Carry Gun. Uh, several experts weighed in on this. And because I'm kind of addicted to the 1911, it's not a real hard choice for me, though there are a couple of other uh, concealed carry pistols I'm looking at. Uh, some of these people, um, among other things, other criteria... Look at the length of the barrel. Um, one of these experts carries a Smith & Wesson M&P shield with a 3-inch barrel. Uh, the subcompact size is easy to conceal. It's comfortable to carry uh, no matter what he's wearing. Uh, and yet others say, you know, the longer barrel is better. Uh, and uh, this one expert says 4-inch uh, versus 5-inch. Going to make a difference in accuracy at 25 yards and farther. Uh, do you guys take into consideration uh, barrel length when you're looking for a concealed carry? Not really. I mean, like like the guy said, at 25 yards. Well, you know how many shootings occur at 25 yards? Probably almost uh, none. Almost zero. I mean, even law enforcement shootings, that's like forever away. So that's just not really a factor. The only factor I get for me, I have uh, larger hands. So if I get too short, sometimes the way I... It, it depends on the gun. Sometimes I grab a gun and I feel like my finger is just... Like, my wrapping hand is just way too close on some of those, like, LCPs and some of the things that are just really small. That's the only, and even then, it's not really a consideration of barrel links. Just, I put it in my hand, and I go, eh, that's way too close. But, uh, no, I don't think about it at all. Well, they say that once you settle on barrel length, you have to consider the size of the grip and frame yep. uh, that you'd like to shoot. Most subcompact uh, guns don't have a good grip size for adult male hands. Yeah. Um, and it's the biggest factor for recoil other than barrel length. So um, th th that certainly is another consideration. Let me ask you, is there a barrel length that you think is optimum? <laughs> Gosh, for me, sh sure. And that's usually around that, that three inch. And it's not just because it's, it just ha that's just where it happens to be. Uh, for my concealed carry guns, you know, I, I usually carry, well, I don't usually, every day now I carry my SIG P365. And that's just the, the size that it is, and it, it's just what fits me. But, man, it, you can't worry about what everybody else is doing. All of us have such different size hands. We have different clothing requirements. We have different job requirements. So you just you kind of got to put it to what you do, not what everybody else in the world does. It's got to be, man, based com pretty much completely on the way you live your life and what you find comfortable, not comfortable, things like that. Brian, does the texture on the grip ever... Uh dissuade you you're, you're thinking oh this gun feels nice but I, I don't like i don't like the feel of the grip itself yes it does i and i actually have one i've got a springfield that's a subcompact that the the grip texture is just terrible and i don't carry it because it is terrible it's just very uncomfortable to shoot and i'm going to second what jordan said in the fact that what size or barrel length of a handgun you carry should be dictated on the one that you're most comfortable 
shooting and carrying and the one that you'll actually carry. So neither of these guys are size kings. Um, you know, you might stop by Powderhorn Guns and Archery and see if they've got some other grips for that. Uh, somebody may make a more comfortable grip. Uh, that, that a good, that's a good tip. Yeah, well, that's that's what you that's what you do. Um, how about number of rounds? Is that ever uh, something that makes you think twice and go, "Nah, I don't think I want that." Yes, capacity is capacity is king, and you always want more. There's only two times when you don't need more ammo, and when you're drowning or on fire. So, uh, more capacity is always better. But the you know there's a trade off with that. Generally, once you step above seven to nine rounds, you're now in the double stack category. Grips wider, harder to conceal. Some of these firearms manufacturers are making these double-stacked uh, magazines uh, and guns that are really not too bad. Uh, I don't know what they're doing differently. Uh, but, Probably the uh, single biggest improvement we've seen in the last 10 years is slimmer double-stack high-capacity uh, personal defense weapons. Uh, they've, they've really come a long, long ways. You know, one of the things that I don't see a lot of people at the range uh, practicing is reloading, putting a new magazine in, dropping the old magazine. And I got to tell you, when I started practicing that, um, it, it was it, it took a little while for me to say, I just have to drop the magazine and let it fall where it falls. Uh, you're, you're tempted to try and protect it, but <laughs> in an emergency, you're not going to do that. No, the first thing you should do is get that thing <clears throat> brand new out of the box. Is just go ahead and go ahead and drop that on the ground. Kick it around with your feet a little bit. Get it scratched up. It's it's going to be fine. It is get a, it scratched up. <laughs> it, it is a tool. It's hard because you know you don't want to do it. But uh, man, that thing is just a that, that thing is just a tool. So you got to like you said, a, a dead magazine is meaningless and useless to me. So it just goes away. Now if it's still got some some rounds in it, there's some different things we can do depending on why I'm changing magazines. But yeah, a, an empty magazine is is absolutely useless to me. So we throw it on the ground and and go about our day. But yeah, I've, I've watched plenty of people that don't want to drop it. But man, you will do exactly in real life what you do in training i'm we've seen it we've seen police officers do it where they collected their brass that they dropped out of their revolvers back in the days high uh, california high patrol had several shootings where they where they did that and then they, the officers were, were were killed um whilst picking up their brass because they were required after shooting every time they dumped their brass they had to stand and pick it up they could not leave it on the floor and high stress situations man you just you start doing exactly exactly what you're trained to do yeah, Colonel Dave Grossman wrote about that. He's because he did a lot of training for the uh, for law enforcement, uh, and these cops would be used to uh, you know policing their shells. And then uh, in an emergency, they would do what. Uh, in fact, some of them were stunned to find they had a handful of shells yep. uh, at the end of the uh, shooting. So good practice uh, is to get used to just dropping it on the ground. Uh, even if you step on it, who cares? If it's an emergency, you're not going to care. Uh, and you can usually get extra magazines. But I uh, I, I personally uh, had to convince myself to just let it fall wherever it falls and keep moving. That's another thing, too. You know, you stand at the at the shooting range in one place and you shoot and you think you're doing pretty well. And, and it's it's good. I mean, it's it's better than nothing. But in an actual encounter, you don't want to stand in one place. You want to keep moving. Uh, you know, because that you become ground zero. It's it's easier for the bad guy to zero in on you. Uh, and that's one of the things that I love about uh, um, 
Green Me- uh, Green Meadows, <laughs> Close. Uh, Green Valley, uh, is that you can, you know, do those kinds of maneuvers and practice them instead of standing at ground zero. Yeah. Um, let me go on to uh, to steel versus uh, polymer. Uh, Brian, do you have a, a choice? Uh, uh, not a choice, but a, 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 a one that you like better than the other? Not really. I mean, I love the classic all-metal, old-school, really high-end handguns. Uh, Browning High Powers, my favorite 9mm ever made. And uh, I, have, I have several of those. I shoot them regularly. My absolute favorite 9mm to shoot. But I don't carry them. I used to carry them, but I don't carry them now because the new polymer stuff is so much lighter, so much more ergonomic. They're so much com- more comfortable, and they have less buttons to manipulate. Um, it's more of they're always ready, whereas my old high power, yeah, you got to flip the safety off because you're going to carry it locked and cocked. And let's face it, the safety on a high power is hard to manipulate. So... The new polymer stuff, that's what I carry EDC now. And uh, I, you know, I, everybody has their barbecue gun, the really fancy handgun that they're going to carry on special events. And I have those, usually 1911s. But as far as my EDC, it's going to be a, a small polymer, very, very comfortable semi auto. Uh, next, let's move on to sites. You know what? I'm up against the clock. Got to. Got to take a quick break. Uh, If you just turned the radio on, Powderhorn Guns and Archery on board with us. Brian and Jordan are in. And uh, we're talking about how to to find just the right concealed carry weapon on Gary on Guns. Hey, welcome to Gary on Guns. Glad to have you with us. I'm pleased to tell you that from Powderhorn Guns and Archery, Brian and Jordan are in the studio. We're talking about steel guns, and you guys brought in a couple of nice ones in the studio today. We'll, We'll get to that in show and tell. That'll be a little later in the program. Right now, we're talking about... How to pick just the right firearm uh, for concealed carry. And uh, what about sights? Uh, do you guys prefer the steel sights, red dot, laser? Do you have a preference? <laughs> I, I guess we're just going to show our age here. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I, I just like regular old iron sights. I am beginning to play with some of the red dots. Uh, I've, I've never had them in front of me. You know, I did the hundreds of thousands of hundreds of thousands of rounds I did was with steel sights and so it's at first you're like ah <clears throat> we don't need that that that's you know we're old men so you're like ah trash those well kids. you are yeah, yeah but... I know you're only twice as old as me yeah. but uh <laughs> the <laughs> but but uh, uh never mind Jordan we'll go to uh, let's go back to Brian yeah no <laughs> microphone's cutting out um but uh, I've just, I in fact, have, have a firearm on layaway. I will be owning my first one that will have a uh, a red dot sight on it. Um, but uh, talking to the kids that are using that these days, it, I, I think it's going to be a benefit. It's just going to have to change the way you do things. It changes the way you rack the slide. It changes the way you manipulate the firearm. And for me, I don't really want to have to get rid of all the training I've had over the years. I'm not sure it's enough of an improvement for me to worry about doing that. But uh I like I like keeping it simple, small. I do see that the red dots now the red dots are getting smaller. So you talk about when they came out, five, six, gosh, hard to tell. But you know when it came out years ago, they were still pretty big. Even though they were small, they're still pretty big. And now Sig and some of the other ones are working on making those smaller and smaller so that you can fit them in little holsters and not just have this you know big square thing sticking out that's super uncomfortable to have on your hip or in the small of your back or wherever you happen to carry your concealable firearm. So. Um, but uh, I still, I, I don't have any on my concealed carry. And the gun that I've got that I'm going to have on, on layaway, it is not a carry gun. It's going to be a 
a, a heavy shooting gun, um, a range gun. So um, I still don't have one for that. But uh, the people that do have them really, really talk highly about the uh, the red dots and their robusticity now. Yeah, I don't have a red dot on uh, any of mine. But, uh, Brian, it seems to me that if I don't have to bring my vision in and bring it out uh, to line everything up, it should be a lot easier. And, you know, as you le- lose the that near vision as you get older, you know, that's a real benefit. I think it is. And uh, I think what it's going to take is just a lot of time at the range and a lot of practice. Me personally, I find it a little bit slower for me to acquire the red dot reticle and uh, and get it on target than I do the old steel iron sights that I've grown up with. Um, but that's one of those things I had to train for 40 years to be able to uh, be proficient with my iron sights, and that's all I ever trained with. And if all I ever trained with was the new red dot sights, I would be just as proficient, I'm sure, with those as I am with the iron sights, or maybe even more so. Uh, they are definitely more visible. They stand out. It's just a little bit harder for me to acquire them, but once you get used to it, you can pick it up every single time. I wonder about racking uh, the firearm, because yeah. uh, your hand would naturally want to slide, because I don't have one and I've not used them. i got to get some younger people on the program. <laughs> um, I wonder if you can throw it off by racking it and letting your hand hit it when you do that. So they say no, um, and most of them have shrouds around them, um, but you do have to change, because most of us are used to you know, overhand grip, back of the slide to to release once we've reloaded on a full magazine or we're working on a stoppage or whatever. And now that thing is usually in your way. Um, or it's, it's sharper edges, so you, you, you do some of the stuff, you start getting more injuries, or it, it doesn't feel good to your hand. So you've seen a lot of people that either come forwards or now they utilize that with like a, a straight open hand, almost like a slap to it. Um, so I, people are adapting. People are adapting. It's just so different than what, what us old folks are used to. But uh, I think it'll be easier. I think once Red Dots went on uh, long guns, you know, at first people were like, oh, goodness. But then, man, it was like cheating. I mean, it makes such a difference, and it's so much easier to learn and so much easier to be proficient at. You just don't have to work nearly as hard when you have those things. And uh, I think it'll be the same for the, the handguns. I mean, it just it is. Speaking of injuries, when you guys first started shooting semi-automatics, did you ever get the web of your hand uh, right up? Uh, uh, right up where it could get pinched? It never happened to me, but I've seen it at the range way too many times, uh, particularly with uh, older revolver shooters who are used to putting their thumb over the top of the uh, of their their main hand, and uh, the slide would come back and inevitably just cut that thumb uh, pretty bad. I mean, it, it was it was it a hurts. serious injury, and those those guys learned quick the hard way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you don't have there. to do it more than once to realize you got to keep your hand and the web uh, uh, under there uh, where it won't get hit. But boy, that hurts. Last thing, while we're talking about picking the concealed carry, uh, a lot would have to do with where you carry the firearm. I I just I can't get used to ankle holsters, and they don't make sense to me. Uh, but I would think if you're getting an ankle holster, you'd need a, a pretty small firearm. Uh, it, it, you guys have any uh, any input on that? Yeah, we usually see, we don't do many ankle holsters anymore. I know uh, Brian's dad, Don, uh, he carried an ankle holster every day, um, dress pants and everything. He had his uh, little, I think it was a six shot, uh, Smith & Wesson Airweight uh, 38 special down there. Um, and that's typically what I see. I I don't think I've sold an automatic one in the last, uh, a holster for an automatic uh, 
for a for an ankle in the last ten years. I don't remember one, but I probably only do one of those holsters every three years now. So it is not as common or popular as a of a carry as it as it once was. A friend of mine, the uh, late uh, Rod Carr, who was a terrific uh, guy. He was a uh, police detective in Syracuse and uh, Syracuse, New York, and uh, ultimately a captain, uh, uh, chief of police rather. Uh, he used to carry that as a second weapon. He would keep the one uh, holster, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the side. Uh, uh, trying to figure out exactly how to describe it. Uh, and it he'd, he'd carry the uh, the side holster, but then he would carry also uh, the ankle holster. Uh, and I remember, because I'd never seen it uh, done before, uh, we were going into a city building, and he had to disarm, and he lifted his pant leg and pulled it out. And I thought, well, that's a neat place to put it. And then later I realized how challenging it could be uh, in an emergency to reach down and get that. Uh, and so I just kind of not too crazy about it. Last thing as we wrap this up, um, you know, I can I can go into powder horn guns and archery and I can put my hands on a firearm and everything, but do you guys need to actually shoot it before you buy it? Me, not really. Um, I've never been that... I've just never been that way on guns. It, you pick it up, you pull the trigger, it goes bang, okay, great. Now, what fits my other needs? I'm not too worried about the shooting portion of it. And that, that has bit me every once in a while. I buy maybe maybe twice in my life I've bought a gun, then shot it, and it's just something was wrong. Something hurt my hand, <clears throat> a part of the grip. Um, it just didn't fit right, it, stuff like that. But now, after you've bought a lot and you've, you've shot a lot, you can kind of just hold a gun and, and know what the what the issues are going to be, um, if you're going to have any. Um, it is always nice to go shoot one. I mean, it's it's great. But, uh, no, I, I don't usually worry about that too much anymore. And yeah, I don't I don't either. If, I can tell how it feels. Uh, rack it, dry fire it once or twice to see what the trigger pull is like. Is there long stage, short stage, that sort of thing? Uh, and I pretty much know. Uh, Brian, the same for you? For the most part, I think the question there is, are you already a proficient shooter or are you not a proficient yeah. shooter? And if you're not a proficient shooter, the first thing that you're going to need to do is become a proficient shooter. And the only way to do that is time at the range. So for that individual who is making their first uh, concealable firearm purchase, there would be benefit to um, to some time on the range and, and go go shoot a different variety of, of handguns and find the one that A, they can function the best, be the most comfortable with, and be the most proficient with. And their their proficiency will build as their time on the range uh, accumulates. So yeah. for that particular person, there is definitely benefit to having range access. But for somebody who's been shooting uh, and they've, they've already gained their proficiency, I don't think that there's much benefit in being able to shoot one as long as you can touch, feel it in the, in the store. Um, you have the opportunity to work the action and see how it feels. Final tip, guys, do not try to pick out a gun for your wife or girlfriend. <laughs> Let her pick her own. All right, you're listening to Gary on Gun. Hey, welcome. Glad to have you on board with us. Uh, Brian and Jordan are, well, Jordan is uh, <laughs> I made a, little, it. a little slow here, but he's there. Uh, good, from good, morning. good morning. Good morning from Horn Guns and Archery. A uh, little contest here. We'll see which one of you guys can translate this. Uh, this is the, uh, the President of the United States of America. Like talking. the most significant gun safety law in 30 years. Help keep guns out of the hands of... 
Help keep guns out of the hands of domestic political advisors. Um, all right, uh, Brian, uh, keeping the guns out of the hands of who? Russian Muslim Muslim. I can't argue with that. <laughs> you are a winner. <laughs> well, let's see what Jordan says. I heard messy political advisors. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the president of the United States. Oh, God, are we in trouble. All right. Uh, the uh, Department of Justice, uh, there is a, a, a group that think this marijuana law and gun ownership thing is, is wrong. It's just nonsense to them. I don't smoke marijuana. I have never smoked marijuana. I know people who have. Uh, I spent uh, my formative years in the bar business. My parents owned a tavern. And right now, if you are a drinker, if you go out and buy a fifth of whiskey, you can still own a gun. If you consume the whiskey, you can own a gun. You might not be allowed to carry the gun or have access to it while you're hammered, but you can buy the whiskey, buy the beer, buy the wine, and still own a gun. In about half the country, you can now have marijuana, either for medical purposes or recreational purposes. Uh, and I'm guessing that line is really, really close. Uh, but you can't buy a gun. You just buy the pot, and you're not allowed to go out and buy a gun. Federal law uh, makes it a felony for cannabis consumers to possess firearms. Uh, that law, Recent Magazine writes, the U.S. Department of Justice argues in an appeal brief filed last week is, quote, consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. The constitutional test that was established with Bruin is to make its case the government cites laws passed in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century that prohibited people from carrying or firing guns while intoxicated, which the federal government is arguing is analogous to the gun ban for marijuana users that Congress opposed, uh, imposed in 1968. Either one of you guys think this argument holds any water? Not, not really, but you've got an administration who's stuck in a hard spot. Uh, yes, everybody smoked dope. Great. Nobody should have guns. In fact, less people should have guns. So how can they conceivably allow, say, nope, we're going to allow more people to have guns? It doesn't even matter if they agree with the reason, like, oh, yep, marijuana should be legal. Let's make it legal. Everything's great. They can't allow more people to have guns. I mean, there's no way the administration could allow more people to have guns. So they're stuck in trying to... Uh, trying to talk to us like we're retarded and trying to talk to us like we have no idea what we're <clears throat> like we're not thinking individuals oh, and they so have like to come with arguments like we're like Joe this. Biden that's <laughs> I didn't say that uh, yes and uh, I think that's that's why you hear these silly things because they know in their political agenda there is zero chance they could allow more people to have guns even if I think most of their party would agree with it they're the the standard legalize the the marijuana get rid of the criminals don't don't t send all these people to jail for it and whether you agree with it or not doesn't really matter but i think that's most of their party agrees they tend to be a little more socially liberal um but there's no way they can allow more people to have guns it, it would just destroy so even the if they have to defy logic with their yeah. argument they're, they're i think so throw whatever it takes to, to on the wall to make it stick 
Brian, um, we've all known people who smoke pot. Sure. And we've all known people who drink. Sure. Um, I have never met, and I'm sure there's somewhere out there, I'm just curious to see if you've met them, but I've never met anybody who was smoking pot and got crazy angry about everything. They all seem to sort of mellow out. Absolutely. I, my experience with people who consume marijuana is that they tend to just get more and more chill the more and more uh, inebriated they become. And uh, at some point, they're just kind of couch locked and hanging out and, and mellow. And Whereas, eating Fritos. Yeah. <laughs> most of the time. And, and alcohol, uh, somewhat the opposite um, for, for an awful lot of alcohol consumers. The, the more they consume, the more sort of enraged and irate they can tend to get. Um, not everybody, of course, but oftentimes. And, I mean, you hear about bar fights as being a thing because bar fights are a thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, three generations in that business. And I'm telling you that some people, when they drink, a lot of people, when they drink, uh, they get violent. Um, the um, anal sphincter in them comes out, and in, sometimes they're very, they're very nice people when they're sober, but uh, they start drinking, it gets crazy. But I've never seen a pot smoker do that, and it's possible. Maybe somebody listening to us now is going, well, I know somebody. But it's not the rule. It's the exception. And to tell somebody that they're using marijuana for medical purposes or recreational purposes just because you've purchased it you can't own a gun doesn't make sense and it also implies that you're constantly stoned correct right? i mean in, in both cases are absolutely wrong i mean, most of your your pot consumers out there they're perfectly fine 99% of the time, and most of them are perfectly fine when they're high. But uh, I think an argument can be made that uh, that might not be the best time for them to be uh, actively engaging in firearm sports. But um, it, it should not preclude them from enjoying firearms when they're not uh, consuming marijuana. Yeah, it, it just the possession of or the purchase of <clears throat> seems somewhat uh, incongruous with the point of the alcohol law. And to suggest that just purchasing uh, marijuana should, you know, prohibit you from defending yourself or having the capacity to do so uh, I, doesn't... I, I don't think that when somebody gets their marijuana card for medical uses or they just go to the dispensary and buy marijuana for their own uh, pleasure, that should not preclude them from their Second Amendment rights in any way, in my opinion. Yeah, now I wonder... and. I, uh, if you go in there and you buy something and you use your credit card, can the government subpoena their records and trace the credit card purchase back to you as a gun owner and then come after you? What are the... <laughs> well, that whole thing's a sticky wicket with credit cards and gun dealers. And, um, and it's really a problem for all of us as consumers as to how much access they have to our information and what we do with our money and how we how we spend, where we spend, why we spend. Um, it, it will be a big problem at some point, in my opinion. Um, it, it, should they have that information? I don't think they should. But they have it, and they're just going to get more of it. So we're going to have to figure out a way as a society to deal with the fact that they're always watching. Which credit card companies have backed away from this? Do you know? For the firearms industry? Yeah, the credit card, for, for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure anybody listening to Gary on Guns does, uh, credit card companies uh, have embraced, in some cases, uh, giving a special code 
uh, to the credit card purchase. Uh, so they, so the government would be able to tell if you purchased a firearm or ammunition. Now, a couple of those credit card companies have since backed off on this, and I don't remember which ones they were. Do you guys know? I think Discover was the first, but as of right now, MasterCard and Visa, MasterCard, and Discover have all backed off on the what they originally said. Okay, yeah, we're going to do that. Now, some of your main banks that sponsor those cards... I think are still on board, but I don't know what they can do if they lose, if Visa MasterCard Discover says no, because I think they hold all the power. But as of, I think, God, that that wasn't even that long ago, beginning of March, uh, Fox uh, did an article on that where all of them have kind of paused their work on the plan to track um, purchases at gun stores. They don't... They don't really know, do they, Brian? I mean, it, it, just because it's a gun store, you could be in there buying paper targets. That's fact. We sell all kinds of stuff besides guns, but should they be tracking any of it, whether it's guns or not? And my answer is no. Yeah, I, I concur. But this is what you get when you have big government. When you have the government running the banks and uh, having uh, the, the ability and the capacity to put pressure uh, on anybody in the finance industry, including credit card companies, uh, it just... Uh, it's it, it's you're getting what you asked for, uh, and we uh, you know it sounds more like the weekday show, but we really do need smaller government to protect our freedom. Positively, um, if you want to send me a message, go to GaryNolan.com, uh, and you can send that right in. It'll pop up in studio, or you can give us a call eight hundred five two nine five five seven two. It's Gary on Gun with Powderhorn Guns and Archery. Brian and Jordan in the studio right now. Hey, welcome. Glad to have you with us. It is Gary on Guns and uh, Powderhorn Guns and Archery on board. Uh, and uh, if, you're, uh, if you're driving through central Missouri and you're looking for a place to buy firearms, uh, archery, targets, ammunition, where would you find Powderhorn Guns and Archery? Oh, we are at 1915 Paris Road. In Columbia, Missouri. In, in Columbia, yeah. Missouri, yes. Yeah, that's Jordan. Brian is on board as well. <laughs> so down um, on Paris Road, right across from the Central Bank, uh, there's a big Fastenal store, and uh, there's a there's a drive there to go to Fastenal. We're right next to Fastenal, next to Mid Missouri Electric. Sounds good to me. Um, it's, it's easy enough to find. But anyway, just in case somebody was looking, because we're going to do show and tell in a little while, and uh, you guys brought in some really neat stuff here. We'll get into that. Uh, in the meantime, there's a piece over at Bearing Arms talking about whether or not we're on kind of a sugar high as the result of Bruin. Uh, Bruin was unquestionably uh, a, a terrific decision uh, for Second Amendment supporters. Uh, but they write, in an ideal world, lawmakers would refrain from passing laws that violate the Constitution. The executive branch would stop usurping the authority of lawmakers... And the judiciary would make use of its lifetime tenure to judge cases on their merits and not be cowed down by public opinion or political pressure. But the world we live in is far from that. The weekend, uh, the weekend, uh, weekend, not weekend, <laughs> the weakened separation of powers will be dangerous in the long run, not just for the Second Amendment, but for the overall health of the republic. Uh, secondly, they write, uh, enemies of our freedom are organized, well-funded, and waging an all-out war. What they're saying here, uh, Brian, is let's not get too complacent. We got a victory here, and it's good, but don't sit down and think, well, it's over. 
it's never over. And they will continue to, to overreach and try to um, violate our rights, whether it's our free speech rights or our Second Amendment rights or any of them, as long as they can. Uh, I'm 100% convinced. And uh, we have to, as, as citizenry, we have to do our part and really make the phone calls and put some pressure on our legislators to make sure that uh, all of our rights are preserved. You remember earlier we were talking about big government uh, and how we end up with you know the, them controlling banking and able to exert pressure on retailers and manufacturers, etc. Another uh, aspect of this, in, in this particular fight, is, for instance, that the CDC uh, is working uh, with, you know, uh, anti-gunners to try to make the case that this is somehow a national health issue. Uh, you got Hollywood uh, involved making uh, movies and TV shows that imply that uh, guns are... I mean, you never hear of a concealed carry permit holder on TV doing the right thing and saving lives. There's always some horrible downside to it. Uh, you got pressure campaigns on private industry, uh, academia. They're using public money to push their agenda. So it it's never over. It's, they, it's yeah. never over and it will never end. Um, and, I mean, we have to face the fact that they've got a deep bench. When you look at uh, all of the things you just listed, Hollywood's influence, the media's influence, um, they they are probably going to be more and more successful with convincing people uh, just the opposite of what we believe to be true. And uh, it's going to be a tough fight to to push back against it. But I really do think that uh, the thinking people will, in the end, for the most part, prevail. And I, I think back to when I was young, we were having these same conversations way back when in the early 80s. Um, oh, when Gary was and, young in the early <laughs> 30s? <laughs> in so, 1980s. Go ahead. It's not a new argument. We've been facing these same things for forever and uh, it will just continue now i think they do have a deeper bench now than they did back then yeah um you know the irony of hollywood being a part of this hmm. really does i mean think about all the tv shows and movies uh, where they're you know they're glorifying firearms using them all over the place the hypocrisy of most of them. I, I watched a Liam Neeson show the other day, and, and as you know, he's a, a very staunch anti-gunner. But almost every one of his movies, and all super successful, they are all him using firearms to defend his family. Yeah, but he doesn't see that in real life. But he doesn't just... see it in real life. And, but he, and he does a very great job of portraying himself as this master with a firearm and, uh, and using them to defend the people he loves. And in the same breath, as soon as he's off of that uh, off of that stage, then he's just bashing the firearms industry. Crazy. Gerardo sent a message uh, from GaryNolan.com, uh, and he wants to know why does it matter if credit card companies have a code to track gun purchases? Every purchase requires a background check and is being tracked already. What do you, you know, how, what's your response, Jordan? I think the only issue was the reason they were doing it is because they were being asked by a government entity to do it. 
so that the government entity could have that information. Because I don't care what MasterCard tracks. I mean, they track a million different things to know so they can make more money, serve you better, all these wonderful things. But I think whenever we get asked, and it's a it's a government entity, a left-leaning leaning government entity that asks for that to be done and asks for that information to be collected, you know, no good shall come of this. And I think that's what the problem is. Well, why? Why do they want to know that? Do they want to know that so that if they see that you made, let's say I make an $800 purchase, and uh, they're not allowed to keep a list of who bought guns. Like, you know, we do our background checks, right? They are not allowed to keep those names on file for more than 24 hours. They have to purge their records so that there is no national list. Yeah, I, I... So this helps them create a national list. Okay, well, they purged that, but now they know that, uh, that Jordan spent uh, $800 at a gun store, so there's a good chance Jordan has a gun. And, God, he did that every day for the last two months. We better go talk to Jordan. That's the fear. Is it reality? Is it realistic? Don't know, but I get it. I get why you would worry about that, that kind of information. It's the beginning of a gun registry. They're trying to go around the fact that they can't make a national gun registry and make one just around the side. One listener whose name I won't read out loud said, I visited a pot dispensary in Arizona recently. They don't accept credit cards, cash only. However, they do record your identification, driver's license, etc., yeah, because the federal laws still prohibit that cash being moved across state lines if because of um, a still federally prohibited item. So you can't move that. Uh, you can't move that cash anywhere. It's one of the big problems that they have. It's why they kind of unbankable. And those problems seem uh, those different scenarios where you cannot use credit cards at a dispensary. Um, is, I think, somewhat relevant to this conversation because I do see a time when merchant services will stop serving the firearms industry, which would mean that I, as a gun shop owner, would not be able to accept credit cards. And that's a that's a real risk because most of our customers pay with credit cards uh, or plastic of some kind. Very few use cash anymore. All right, we got phone calls, show and tell, Dr. John Lott, all coming up on Gary on Guns. 